0: Hey, everyone. Welcome back. I'm Robert Fleming, one of the partners in the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. And you're listening to Elder Law Issues with me and one of the other partners, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Elizabeth, we, uh, we, we spent our last podcast episode in, in some depth talking about third party special needs trusts and addressing some of the questions that one of our listeners posed to us. Uh, And I I think we got pretty far down into the weeds, but covered a lot of ground. Uh, But I wanted to go back and hit a couple of the other questions this listener posed. So are you up for talking about third-party special needs trusts for a moment again?
1: Sure thing, Robert.
0: And we're only, remember, listeners, only talking about third-party special needs trusts today. If you want us to explain the difference between third-party and self-settled or first-party special needs trusts, Go listen to the previous podcast where Elizabeth does a really good job of distinguishing them. Um, but we're just talking about third-party special needs trust today. In, a, in another episode later, we'll go over some of the same ground for self-settled or first-party special needs trust. So Elizabeth, one of the questions that our listener asks is, okay, you have some money in a third-party special needs trust. You have invested it. And let's say that you made $5,000 last year, or I'm sorry, you made $5,000 in the current year in income for the special needs trust. What are you gonna to have to do by way of accounting and tax returns and the like?
1: So the first thing people need to understand is that you should not be going on to TurboTax and trying to <laughs> do a, t- a uh, return, tax return for the trust uh, yourself. This is a really bad idea. And we know that you want to save the beneficiary money, but just don't do that because it's going to get worse. (laughs) It's Uh, going to get more confusing.
0: (laughs) I I have to interrupt because I'm laughing because TurboTax is actually the program that we use, but it is a professional version of TurboTax that does uh, 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 1041s, fiduciary income tax returns. So it is correct. Don't just go do it on TurboTax. Unless you are a professional tax preparer and you have paid for the professional program.
1: And we have somebody who is just fantastic on our team, Ng Tang. She is a CPA and she is in-house here at and Curdy. So um, Ng is the person who is preparing these returns. And so what we do when people come with these kinds of questions is immediately we try and connect them with a CPA who we know can help with the tax return. So Robert, I think your first question is, gosh, like, do you have to tell the IRS about this income? The answer is yes. So so <laughs> you can't just pretend that this is a, for instance, something like a Roth IRA where you're just saving and, you, and you're not having to pay any income on what's being generated by the trust. That's wrong. So you're going to have to pay income. One of the questions that I think this begs is who established the third-party special needs trust and is that person still alive? And in that case, will the income be reported on the trust tax return or can it be reported on the person who established the trust the grantor's tax return so it's actually it depends
0: it always depends that that is the absolute favorite lawyer answer it depends well all right so let's assume that the person who established this third party trust if you listen to the earlier podcast you know that it's a grandmother in maryland who set up a trust for her granddaughter who lives in Arizona. She has died, and so the trust is going to have to file a tax return. How expensive is it going to be to prepare that tax return, Elizabeth?
1: Well, Robert, it's going to be, I would say, depends on the, the CPA, the CPA's experience and whether or not there have been good records with the tax return. There will need to be what's called a 1041, which is the fiduciary income tax return that will need to be filed. And when I work with most CPAs, we see the fees for preparing these kinds of trust returns anywhere from say $1,000 to maybe $2,500 depending on the assets in the trust, whether there have been good records, whether they're doing this work on an hourly basis. People need to understand that the trustee is going to be responsible for keeping the kinds of records that the tax preparer is going to need to see. So for instance, the $5,000 worth of income, All right, Robert, well is that on one 1099 or are you getting several 1099's for that trust? Also what are we talking about as far as the other assets in the trust? Are there assets that may be depreciating? Are there expenses or distributions that have been paid for, like medical expenses? You know, There are a lot of factors that go into determining how the trust will be taxed and what kind of tax the trust will need to pay.
0: You know, I, I have to say, Elizabeth, with my... my uh hypothetical where there's only $5,000 of income, it seems a little bit harsh to pay $1,000 in tax preparation fees. And I suspect that most CPAs would say, well, I'm not going to charge you $1,000 for this because the income is so low. But make that a $15,000 of income. And I think you're in the right range. I think it might cost $1,000 to prepare the tax return.
1: Robert, and I'm going to say for anybody who is working as a trustee, and you're trying to skimp on the costs of tax preparation you're missing the point
0: yes that's absolutely right these things are complicated to administer and you don't want to cut corners and and do them by guess and by golly Uh, you need good advice for third party or self-settled special needs trusts because they are unusual animals with some some um, particular rules governing them.
1: And the cost of the tax return, that preparation, Robert, can be paid for by the trust.
0: Can be paid out of the trust. And, And the other thing to keep in mind is that if the trust has made some distributions for the benefit of the beneficiary, even if the beneficiary didn't receive a nickel of cash, but they had some medical bills, as you said, Elizabeth, paid, or they, they got a new car, or the car's repairs have been paid, or even the car's insurance has been paid. Uh, those are all perfectly legitimate special needs trust payments, and they carry out some of the income. So the practical result is probably that the trust, while it has to file a tax return, doesn't pay any tax, on at least on income in the in the low thousands of dollars of income. Probably the tax, tax is actually paid by the beneficiary.
1: Hey Robert, what about in your facts if the trust also owned a house, and that house is where the beneficiary lived with a roommate, and the roommate paid rent to the trust. Does that complicate things?
0: Oh boy, does it complicate things. And you know, forget the roommate for a minute. If the only thing that the, the trust did was to let the beneficiary live in the house rent-free, has it distributed income to him by not charging him rent? And what effect does all of that have on his public benefits eligibility? These are these are complicated questions about really simple, ordinary kinds of, of settings. So you are going to need a, a qualified CPA and a qualified attorney to give you some direction.
1: So I think, Robert, what I want our listeners to know about that question with generating a certain amount of income is that that's just one tiny, tiny portion of the analysis that needs to go into some of the fiduciary income tax issues around a special needs trust.
0: So in in our earlier podcast, we talked about multiple state involvement. So let's change it for a moment. The trustee is in Missouri, not in Arizona. The beneficiary is in Arizona. The trust was established in Maryland. When grandma died, her Maryland will poured assets into the trust the assets came from Maryland, and maybe the broker still is, is has an office in Maryland. Where does the trust have to file tax returns? Does the trust have to file an, an Arizona state income tax return?
1: Well, Robert, the if the beneficiary is in Arizona, the beneficiary will receive a K-1 from the trust, and the beneficiary may need to file an income tax return in Arizona. But really, we're going to be looking for exactly where the trustee is. In that case, it's Missouri.
0: So yeah, I think you're right that uh, that there it's conceivable that there might be a Maryland income tax return if there was rental income or something. But the brokerage account is not going to generate a Maryland income tax return, and uh, and, and the trustee is going to file primarily in Missouri income tax return. And there's no particular magic, by the way, to the states that I'm picking. I guess I'm sort of staying in the M's. Maybe I should use Montana next.
1: Well, Robert, the K-1, though, is an important thing, I think, for our listeners to understand. There will be a K-1 that is an income tax form that will be generated by the tax preparer, and that will be showing the income distributed, and that will show up on the beneficiary's income tax return. Now, whether or not the beneficiary is going to need to file an income tax return in Arizona is a great question. He or she may not need
0: to. Because their income might not be high enough, even with the K-1 income.
1: Exactly. But the trustee needs to be very aware that the beneficiary is going to need to do some kind of analysis with this K-1 and the trustee can't just send out a K-1 and pretend that the job is done.
0: Right, because the beneficiary may not even be able to file a tax return. They may not understand the significance. They have a disability after all, so you may be working with somebody who needs a little more guidance. Not necessarily, but you may be. Uh, But hang on, this beneficiary is receiving SSI and section 8 housing assistance and food stamps and all sorts of government benefits if they have uh, if they have income on a k1 attributed to them doesn't that knock them off of all their benefits
1: could create issues robert and that's one of the reasons why when we look at third party special needs trusts There's oftentimes provisions within that trust that will allow the trustee to withhold distributions of income. In fact, that's the whole point of these special needs trusts, is that they are discretionary. They allow the trustee to make decisions about whether or not income or principal is distributed from the trust. So there is not going to be a requirement, Robert, if we're looking at a well-written third-party special needs trust, that the trustee actually distribute out income.
0: So uh, this is all too complicated, Elizabeth. I'm tired of being the trustee. Uh, I'd like to give up being trustee and turn it over to somebody else. Can I just resign? And if I just resign, can I name my own successor trustee?
1: What does the trust say, Robert?
0: What? You mean I have to read that document?
1: Yeah, I think that's probably a good place to start. We meet with a lot of people, Robert, who just want to throw their arms up. They get incredibly frustrated, understandably, about all of the different fiduciary rules, the exposure, the personal liability that they have as trustees. And what we want to do is we want to slow down the conversation. Let's read the trust. Let's figure out if we can make things workable so that if somebody wants to remain trustee, they feel that they can do that with the resources and support of a good attorney who may be able to help them. If that's not going to be workable and the trustee wants to resign, of course, the trustee has the ability to do that, but we actually need to look down the road a little bit and see who else will step in. We cannot have the beneficiary of a third-party special needs trust also be her own trustee. That doesn't work.
0: So one of the choices that we often talk to clients about is whether Fleming and Curdy might be that successor trustee. If the trust was written in Maryland, it's probably not too high a likelihood that we are named as the successor trustee, but if everybody in the family agrees that they would rather go back to being siblings and aunts and uncles rather than trustees, can we have a conversation about somebody like Fleming and Curdy or some other professional trustee stepping in and taking over?
1: Sure, Robert. In fact, we actually were working as a trustee for a third-party special needs trust uh, where the beneficiary lived in indiana and our case management uh, team and property manager helped the beneficiary with uh, decisions around placement, and we ended up selling that house and doing a visit out to the beneficiary. So there are actually a number of cases where we do have beneficiaries out of state, and Fleming and Curdy is named as trustee. The important thing for people to know in those cases is it does mean that our case manager or our property manager may be making an annual visit, making making sure that we are taking care of the beneficiary's needs. So it does happen, Robert.
0: So uh, one of the questions that we got asked is whether the the trustee who wants to resign can just name their own benefit I'm sorry their own successor trustee and uh, and you said Elizabeth go read the trust are there some trusts that say the trustee can pick their own successor? Yes, there are Robert. And in fact when we write special needs trusts or really any kind of trust, we by default usually give people that power. Because we find that being the trustee is not nearly as much fun as people think it's going to be, and, uh, and they're very often looking to get out, but not in a way that hurts their nephew, sister, whoever it is that's the beneficiary. So it's good to give somebody the power to, to pick a successor. That's not the only person you can give the power to, of course, Elizabeth. As you know, we could name a trust protector or somebody else with the power to select a successor. Or ultimately, if we have to, we could go to court to, uh, to have the judge agree to name a successor. Um, we like to avoid going to court if possible. But if you go to court, that doesn't mean the trust is in the court forever. You can ask the judge to name a successor trustee and then close the court file and let the successor trustee operate as if they had been named in the document.
1: And, you know, Robert, the case that I mentioned in Indiana, we did exactly that. We had the court... Um, bless the trust and appoint Fleming and Crudy, successor trustee. But you know what? We never even needed to have a hearing. So it ended up being a couple of hours of our time preparing the petition and getting a consent signed by the beneficiary and different parties. And we didn't even have a court hearing. In that particular case, the court was happy to review the petition and sign the order, and nobody even needed to go in. So it, it depends on what's going on, whether or not we're actually going to need to have a hearing. The court sometimes will bless these kinds of things without a hearing.
0: Well I want to wrap this up for today Elizabeth we're beyond our usual uh target time for these short but we hope informative podcasts but um if you pay attention listener we will come back to many of those questions uh, in the setting of a self-settled or first party special needs trust in a in a subsequent podcast episode and and we hope you'll join us then the answers are a little bit different in several of the different places and uh and the considerations are often wildly different, so um, we'll talk about that. Then, in the meantime, I'm Robert Fleming, one of the partners at the law firm Tucson Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. I'm talking with Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We do at Fleming and Curdy we do a lot of special needs planning, special needs trust administration, uh, and and uh, if you are an Arizona resident with special needs issues, we're happy to talk to you about. Arizona law on the topic. And in the meantime, we hope you'll join us for our next podcast episode. Talk to you then.